You know, there was a time with another group of people who went exploring in the wilderness. Well, wandering, it's sometimes cold. And in the midst of that barren Sinai desert, there Moses cried out at one point. With the difficulties that they were facing, Moses cries out, Lord, if you want me to go on, show me your glory. Give me a clearer view of who you are and that you can carry me. Seeing God as he truly is, is going to help Moses keep going. And so that, in, that is what, what God does for Moses. You perhaps remember the story, if you, if you were in that Old Testament survey that, that, that Don talked about, where, where there was a time when, when God then took Moses and hid him in the cleft of the rock. He covered him there with his hand. And then his glory passed by, and Moses could only look at part of it because the vision of God was too much for Moses to be able to see fully. But he could see part of it. Show me your glory. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in a tough spot, a difficult place, trying to press on but feeling, Lord, if I'm going to keep going, show me your glory. Show me who you are in the midst of all this. Well, I think that's the place where John is when he receives this revelation of Jesus Christ. That, that John is in exile. He's being persecuted. He's been separated from those he cares about and those that he's responsible for, that church in Ephesus. And there are others that, that, that he misses and cares for, rely on him as well. In the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of the hardship that he's enduring because of his faith in Jesus, he needs to see Jesus. And that in chapter 1 is what God gives to John first, and then for John to share with the churches. As we go into chapters 2 and 3 now in the book of the Revelation, we're going to be able to listen in on specific words, particular specific guidance that our Lord has for seven different churches. Their circumstances are slightly different from one to another. I can't I won't have time to talk about all the details. We're going to look at, the, at three of the churches this morning. But first, let's just, let's just tune into where are these churches um, located. They're in modern-day Turkey. I have a map of it here. There's, there's modern-day Turkey, Israel down below. And in that circle there, you see one city, Izmir. That is one of these seven churches. Let's zoom in a little bit. So John is on Patmos there at the bottom left. And he, he writes first to the church at Ephesus and then Smyrna, modern-day Izmir, and then Pergamum, and then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see what's happening here. This is the first-century mail route. You can make one loop and an hour or two between cities, you, 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 you could travel today from one city to the next. And uh, in the same way that you could travel from one all the way through around and you could drop off the particular word to each church, you could drop off a copy of the book of the Revelation to each church as, uh, as a messenger traveled through this route. And so that's what's happening. That's why they're in the, they're in the, in the uh, order that they are. And uh, these seven churches... Seven, obviously, is a number that, that, that God is having John use a lot, both in his gospel but here in the book of the Revelation. And so these seven churches represent all the churches, not only in that area, but Christ's church through the, through the ages. They're, 
they're somewhat different. They each have different needs, even as the churches do still today. If the Lord were to speak specifically to Brush Prairie today, it's going to be a little bit different. Well, it is this Sunday, even a little different than what he is speaking to another church in another locality. And yet the Lord is speaking to his churches. And what he does as well in each of these letters, you'll find that he, he gives each of them a particular glimpse of himself. Even as he gave John the vision of who he was in his glory. Each church needs to know something about Jesus, and he emphasizes or re-emphasizes an aspect out of that chapter 1 vision that will be of particular help and need to that particular church. So those are some of the things to look for as we go forward. But as we look into the first church, I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to read each of these three letters one at a time as we get to them rather than all at once. So I won't ask you to stand up and down for the reading, but let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 2. And if you're using a church Bible, you, I think you can follow along on about page 1028. But Revelation chapter 2, the first church we're going to come to is that church of Ephesus. So in chapter 2 and verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now let's pause for a minute there because we're going to run into that on every church and you, you're probably going to be wondering, why is John, as John's been given these revelation, this revelation, this book from Jesus through, there, there's the angels along the way that are guiding John, angels from heaven are guiding John through the various visions that he's going to see. Why then is John turning around and writing to an angel of the church in Ephesus and the others. Why is John writing to angels as you think of them with, with harps and wings and a, and, a, and, a, and a halo? Well, that's not what's going on, is it? He's writing to the leader. He's writing to what was called, that word angel means messenger. In fact, the, the Greek word for, for that we get angel from is the Greek letters basically for the word angel. It's kind of like the word metamorphosis comes from a Greek word of, of the same. It's kind of like our word deacon. We just have a deacon and a deaconess. Uh, the, that word deacon means servant. It's a Greek word that we just put English letters to. And that's what happened with angels. Well, the word means messenger. What does the angel Gabriel do? When he comes to Daniel, or when he comes to Joseph, or when he comes to Mary, he comes as a messenger of God to people on earth. Angels are messengers. In fact, the, the word angel is used more commonly than it is in the New Testament, more commonly for human messengers than it is of classic angelic halo and a harp messengers. Okay, But it got me to thinking. Now and again, I'll have a conversation with somebody. I meet somebody new, and they say, well, what do you do? Because that's what guys always talk about, isn't it? What do you do? So talk about what do you do? And I say, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor of a Baptist church. Oh, well, that was a short conversation. I turned to somebody else. So what do you do? Something interesting, maybe. Uh, well, I thought maybe next time I'm on a plane or something and this happens, I've got a new answer. So what do you do? Oh, I really don't talk about it. People don't believe it. No, no, seriously, what do you do? No, 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 you wouldn't believe it. Never mind, it's okay. Seriously, no, no, what, what do you do? Well, you're not going to believe it. Yeah, 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 okay, what do you do? What do you do? Well, I'm an angel. <laughs> now, some of you are having trouble with that, right? You're laughing. You know me better than I, I know. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> no, no, I'm an angel. I have been sent from heaven with a message for the people of earth. 
And in our spiritist age today, likely is not the chap next to me is going to say, really? What does heaven want us to know? I'm glad you asked. And then we can go from there, right? I don't know. Try it with somebody. Somebody who doesn't know you real well right off the bat, you know. Be a little more believable, okay. But, but in the sense that God, yes, Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. You are messengers from heaven. God, messengers from heaven with a word for the people of earth. There you go. Let's step into it. Okay, now that we know who we are and what we're about, let's find out what the, what the message is for this particular church. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. I know your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, how you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And there's where the letter widens out to all of us. Any of us who have an ear to hear what the Lord says, let us hear it. What the Spirit says to the church is, not just this church. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church at Ephesus is, is, is exhorted to continue with love. They have been diligent. They have been dutiful. They have been actively engaged. But sometimes activity can take the place of love. There's a scene in the movie Fiddler on the Roof where 25 years of dutiful activity has been assumed to be love. But really, is it? Do you love me? Let's take a look. Boulder, do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you? Well? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out. Go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Uh, no, Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? Well... For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house. Given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Golda, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was shy. I was nervous. So was I. But my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking, Golda. 
Do you love me? I'm your wife. I know. But do you love me? Do I love him? Well? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Then you love me. I suppose I do. Then I suppose I love you too. It doesn't change a thing, but even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. After 25 years, it doesn't change a thing. Or does it? Maybe it changes everything. Now, I've done something to you now. I've, I've ruined you for the rest of the day. For the rest of the day, you're going to have echoing in your heads. Do you love me? And yet, that's going to be a good question to stir around in your mind as we, as we put it to a spiritual matter. You see... Jesus says to them, I hold you in my hand. I walk in your midst in the church, and yet I see your service. I know your busyness. But what is this all about? Do you love me? He knows their toil, their endurance. He knows that they have kept going when the way has been long and steep. That they don't tolerate evil. They have stayed faithful. They have tested things and seen if they are true. It would be easy to withdraw, to do less, to care less, to be less involved, to look after their own needs, but they have kept at it. But our Lord who is in our midst says, I know, I know. Isn't that good to hear? In the midst of your toil and labor, isn't it good to be reminded that yes, he knows, he sees it. He notices that Hebrews tells us the same thing in chapter 6, verse 10, that God is not unjust to forget your work, your labor of love, and that you have ministered to the saints and do serve. And he says to you, I know. But in the midst of all that busyness, their focus on truth has, has led to a neglect of love. They're strong on actions, but apparently weak on affections. What love is this that he's asking about? Is it their love for the Lord? Is it their love for one another? You can make a biblical case for those. We could, we could roll up our sleeves and argue about it if we wanted to. You could argue passionately for one side or the other, and uh, we'd all be right. I think the, the two have to mix together. Certainly, it is the love of Christ that compels us. That, as John says, we love him because he first loved us. And that love for him is what drives us to do what we do. And yet... In following him in love, he's the one who commanded us to love one another. The, John wrote to the church, he said, How you say you love God whom you can't see? How can you love God whom you do not see if you do not love your brother whom you do see? We love God by loving one another. 
even as Jesus took all of the Old Testament commandments and in the shortest Old Testament survey ever, wrapped them all together in this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God and to love one another. There's a danger that that love of Christ which compels us to serve devotedly can subtly be moved to the side by the very busyness or activity in service which it inspired us to. The answer in that is not to start, stop serving, but rather to, to nurture and to rekindle, to, to strengthen along the way, even as you do in relationships, that love that you have for him. To remind yourself of your God and Savior, your fellowship with Him, that He is with you, that you walk with Him. In fact, our, our activity in serving is to be with Him. It's not so much, it's, it's, the focus is not so much on what we're getting done. It's that we are with Him and knowing Him in it. That's why a mom and her dad wants their little ones to be along them in the work around the house, right? Because they want them with them, to know them. That's where the joy is. The corrective here. Now there's a balance as well. He says, and yet, you have this. You, you're hating the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's some balance there. He's not, he's not telling them, you need to start loving everybody no matter what and embracing everybody and everything in the name of love. No, there's balance there. He's not telling them to, to, to um, embrace love at the cost of or the loss of discernment. There are things that God hates. He's calling them back to that balance. It was described in Ephesians 4, to speak the truth in love. To be truthing in love and to hold those two in tension together. To, be, to remember together, to be reminded together of how gracious our God is to us in Jesus. In Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, that's what fueled the serving in 4, 5, and 6, isn't it? The two go together. And so, even as we gather together on Sunday, what do we do? We are remembering in word and in song, in the Lord's table and in prayer, who our God is for us. His love for us that causes us to love Him. We do this regularly in our own devotional time as well. Perhaps that's why we call that prayerful time with our Lord in His Word. Perhaps that's why we call that devotional time instead of disciplined time or duty time. It is a devotional relationship with Him. It's for love, not merely for duty and responsibility. There's a danger here. That if they don't turn back from this, that, that their lampstand could be removed. They would no longer continue to function as a church there in Ephesus. A church does not continue as a local expression of God's family whom he loves and who loves him and others for him without love. That Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if... You have love, one for another. 
Next we come to the church in Smyrna. The, the church in Ephesus is to, is to continue with love. This church is to endure in hope. It's different than most of the other churches in these seven letters in that there is no corrective. That's going to become important. It's a short letter. Let's read it. It starts in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and who came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty. But you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews, and yet they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. He himself will preserve us. This is a call to a persecuted church to continue to endure in hope. Their reminder of who Jesus is, he himself is the first and the last. He is the beginning and he's the end, no matter how difficult the present is. That he is the one who also died and yet he rose again. That's going to become very important to them because some of them are going to die for the name of Jesus. And yet they have assurance. They have the Lord's own words in John chapter 11. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And the one who, believes, who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That your eternal life is in his hands and can never be taken from you. No matter the circumstances of the present. He's got this because he's got you. Jesus reinterprets their standing. This is the purpose of the book of the Revelation as a whole. To, to remind us of a transcendent reality that supersedes whatever we perceive the present to be. He says, I know your present experience of poverty, but you are rich. You have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. This coming from the one, he says, I know your suffering. You will live forever. This from the one who thought he was, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. They've endured slander from those who say they are Jews, and yet Jesus says they're not. I don't know them. They are, in fact, a synagogue of Satan. What's happening here? The persecution apparently involves persecution from the Jewish population in the city. What happened within the Roman Empire after the Jewish revolt in Israel and in Jerusalem in 67 to 70 AD, and now we are 20-some years after that, there was this suspicion of disloyalty toward Rome against Jewish people elsewhere in the empire. And one of the ways they asserted their own loyalty to Rome was to point suspicion to the Christians as the ones who were actually disloyal. They're not under our cover of historic Judaism, which everybody recognizes is different than all the other peoples in the Roman Empire, but they don't show loyalty to the emperor in emperor worship the way that all these other peoples do. 
And so they would bring attention and thus persecution among the Christians around them, in a sense to preserve and deflect from themselves. But he takes it from there a little bit further in verse 10, that the devil is about to. Their, their, their circumstances are not concerning flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. This is spiritual warfare. Like we saw in the book of Ephesians, so we see here. There's a spiritual warfare involved. And so it's not about correcting this church, the opposition, the trouble, the suffering that they're going to endure. It's not by any fault of their own. And do not assume just because tragedy or trouble or trials have come that it's because there's some need of spiritual discipline or correction. It might simply be like the picture on the cover of the, of the bulletin shows that we are refugees in a broken world. There is trouble all around us. As Job says, man was made for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just as surely, we're going to have trouble in this world. But just as surely as well, there is an enemy of our souls, and he will attack those whom the Lord loves. Now, now the Father superintends in that. But he says, you will, and, and that's implied in this, you will suffer 10 days. There is a sovereign limit. I don't think it's 10 actual days here, but I think the 10 days is used in the expression to remind them of somebody in the past. There was a young man named Daniel, and he was in the press of persecution by authorities over him. And yet he, he submitted to a test for 10 days, let's do that. And the outcome of the test, and here's the point. This is the point that I think the parallel, is, the parallel lesson for them and for us. The, uh, Daniel and his friends were willing to trust the outcome to the Lord. They had no control over the outcome, but they were willing to trust that to the Lord. And in the same way here, they can trust themselves to the Lord no matter what the circumstances look like. Jesus, who died and who came to life, will reward their faith. He will give them the crown of eternal life. There's an image there of that victor's crown that's given to the one in the athletic games, the reward after the long struggle is over. But also in Smyrna, there was an occasion where a leading citizen within the city, after their death, they were honored posthumously with the, with the uh, crown of the city. I don't think receiving the crown of the city after their death was of any real benefit to them. However, the Lord's crown of life to those who love him, to those who believe in him, will never end. After their suffering, described here as 10 days, Certainly there's some limitation to it by the divine hand. This light momentary affliction is instead preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that goes beyond all comparison, Paul says. We look at, not at the things that we see, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal, 2 Corinthians 4. You don't get to choose your circumstances, but you do get to choose your response. But your response needs to be informed by who our God is and that He has you. He has you not merely in the, in the testings of this temporary time, but He has you for eternity, 
and he will raise you up. He's been there. He's suffered more than we and is risen from the dead. Revelation is intended to reset our expectations. It's to remind us that there will be temporary suffering. We may not always understand why has God allowed this trouble or this tragedy into our lives. The world wasn't fair to Jesus. It will not be fair to those who follow him. But Jesus will vindicate you. He takes what the enemy would use to destroy you, and he uses it not only for your good, but for your eternal glory. That's his word to the church at Smyrna. They're to continue with love. They're to endure in hope. And the next church, what I want to spend a little more time on, imagine a provincial capital. This is a city bristling with government officials and military officers. Authority is in the air. Add to that an esteemed university filled with elitist intellectuals, an eminent teaching hospital where science and politics of the day mingle together, and an overwhelming variety of alternative spiritualities. There is a temple on every corner. Pergamum. Is, has been called by some as the Washington, D.C. of Asia. And in Pergamum, the church is called to stand for truth. Interestingly, there's a little opposite of the church at Ephesus on the other side. Here Jesus is presented as the sh- one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Look at verse 12. To the angel in the church at Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, the word of God. I know where you, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You live in a tough neighborhood. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, the faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone which no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the church that needs to stand on the truth of God's word. Jesus is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. In verse 13, he knows the harsh environment that they are in. They have confessed Jesus and his name and faith in him even in the face of death. There's a reminder as well of the spiritual warfare that they are in the midst of. That Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that the whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. And so in that spiritual warfare, there's this problem of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. What is that all about? I do not think that there's somebody in the church at Pergamum at the end of the first century that is saying, you know, I've been reading the Old Testament, and I think actually Balaam had it right. I think the things that he and the king of Moab actually led the people of Israel into there on the plains of Moab before they entered the land, I think God was unfair there because I think what they were doing was a good approach. We have to find a way to, you know, to fit in and get along with the culture that is around us. So Balaam really wasn't doing something wrong there. 
I don't think they were teaching Balaam's theories as truth. I think they were doing the same kind of thing. So likewise the Nicolaitans, it says. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? We don't really know, other than they seem to be followers of somebody named Nicholas. Some would say, well, it must be the Nicholas then, uh, earlier in the Bible, one of the seven deacons. Watch your deacons. Nicholas was a very common name, so that's probably not the point. But the, there's an interesting thing, the, the Greek meaning, of, well, of the, Greek, the meaning of the Greek name Nicholas, or here Nicolaitans, are the overcomers of the people, rulers of the people. Balaam's name means basically the same thing in Hebrew. I think there's two reasons that, that John has brought these two together, or the Lord has had John bring these two together. The meaning of the shared meaning of the name and what is happening, there's a dominion over the people through a particular methodology, and that is to get them to compromise. To compromise with the alternative spiritualities around them and thus to end up following the morals of the people around them instead of remaining faithful to God. That's the danger then, and I think it's the danger now. That, that um, as one author put it, the church at Pergamum wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to run with the foxes and hunt with the hounds. That's a little British expression. I thought you'd, you'd go after that, David. The rest of us aren't into fox hunting and hounds chasing them and all of that stuff. But there we go. Maybe a little closer to us is the words, those sage words of advice from the father to the character of Reese Witherspoon in the movie Sweet Home Alabama. You can't ride two horses with one bum, sugar bee. That's what they're trying to do. They're wanting to be faithful to the Lord, or so seem to be, but get along with the culture at large around them as well, and it's not going to be possible. We have that same, you've, you've seen those pressures play out today uh, in participating in the prevailing cultural tens and trends and political ideals. Be careful what you say on social media. It might affect your job. Be careful what ex- opinions you express. We've seen this impact um, particular roles like photographers and bakers and florists who have to play along or pay a price. Coaches who pray might be fired. Be careful about having a Bible on your desk at work to read during your lunch break. That might be offensive to somebody else. Even in churches, long after Pergamum, there is this pressure to cave to the culture. One large denomination just this last week made the statement that they were not able to define who is a woman. Their senior bishop said, well, the definition of a woman used to be self-evident, but no longer has a simple answer. The truth of the matter is the definition is as self-evident as ever. It has just become less popular to say openly that the emperor has no clothes. Now, there's a difference between expecting unbelievers to live like Christians. That's not what I'm advocating for at all. As one of my favorite old-time teachers, J. Vernon McGee, said, "If, if this world's all you got, you might as well squeeze it like a lemon for everything you can. But there is also something as Christians who love those for whom Christ died that we would not affirm and encourage and approve of their following after destructive immorality and deceptive spiritualities either. 
We would not encourage them to their own harm. Why did they compromise here? There's hints of it in the text that Jesus comes to them as the one who has the sword of truth. There's the promise of manna, a spiritual provision by God when you have no means to sustain yourself on your own. There's the promise of a new name. I think there's three reasons that we could point to. First of all, they, they, seem, to be, they seem to be leaning on their own understanding to make their way through instead of trusting God's word and God's truth. They're perhaps feeling pressure by the need of material provisions. How will we get along in life if we don't go along with the culture? He says, I will provide for you. There's, there's a hidden manna, also out of the book of Numbers. And then, and then there's this matter of a new name. And I, will, I will give a new name, which no one else knows, that our identity comes from God. Our identity comes from whom God says that we are, not from the culture, the recognition around us. This church needs to stand for truth as well as for love. They need to confront and correct those who follow the Balaam-like strategy of compromise of the Nicolaitans. A, A big issue where you see this play out today And I'm not jumping on a hobby horse here. I'm just trying to give an example that's widely relevant in our culture today. And that is the press toward gender identity and inclusiveness in that. There's a a huge press on that in terms of transitioning. And this this is not just an attack on children, although what's being done at young ages is is child abuse. When drugs start being taken, even surgery is done, a, a five-year-old child does not know who, who they sh- want to be or should be as an adult. Otherwise, the world would be full of firemen and astronauts. It is simply not that simple when you're five and six and seven years old. Life is much more complicated than that. There is confusion, and especially in the teen years. But the, but the solution is not surgery not changing somebody irreparably for life, but rather to help work them work through who they are and where, in fact, does our identity come from. When one after another, the means of our actual identity are so easily torn away from us. But what's going on, and the press of this within the culture is much bigger than that. And and I'm not convinced that it's a matter of, well, there are some companies out there that want to sell hormones to people for the rest of their lives, and so they're going to push this for that reason. Well, there's probably money to be made. There always is. But I don't think that's the push either. I think it's bigger than that. So let me me give you my little conspiracy theory. You got time for that this morning? Ah, why not? Yeah, Bob the Angel. It's... I think what's, what's, what's going on here also, there is a deconstruction of the social psyche, of the rational thought of an entire population. What do I mean by that? The goal is to get a population at large to believe anything, to accept anything, which is actually to believe absolutely nothing. To have no confidence, in fact, in your own ability to know how things really are. Your own ability to apply your own common sense. Your own ability to see right from wrong without having some authorities describe to you how things are 
and what you should accept. It's to create a compliant population. It is the end of the Nicolaitans to rule over the people. Ever since the fall of humanity, humanity has been working in one way or another on small scale and big scales, in world empires and in individual relationships to domineer and take advantage of somebody else. And it continues to go on today. We'd be foolish if we didn't at least admit that that is the course of fallen humanity. A turning inward on ourselves, a self-focus on ourselves that will use others to our ends. I'm not trying to sell conspiracy theories, but the point of the book of the Revelation is that there is an overarching destructive corruption of humanity as one grand conspiracy since the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 forward. And the, and the purpose of the book of the Revelation is to, in a grand scheme, to paint that across the sky and to remind us of what the spiritual battle really is and how we, as followers of faith in Jesus, live in the midst of it. In the midst of lies and false promises of provision and fulfillment, go along to get along, Jesus is the one who has the two-edged sword of God's truth. Jesus is the one who has the promise of God's provision. My God shall supply all of your needs, Paul told the Philippians. Jesus is the one who says he will give a new name. What our identity truly is from God and not our society. And also that the one who knows our name is the one whom we are accountable to. We are accountable to God above any other. Now, if we can find the balance of continuing faithfully with love like Ephesus and yet standing for truth instead of compromise and going along to get along, learning from Pergamum, then we can yet expect troubles and trials and at times outright attack against us even as the church at Smyrna. But beloved of God, keep going. Jesus is with us. Hear the promise of these three letters. Jesus is with us. He holds us in his hand. He loves you. He died to give you life. He became poor to make you rich in him. He knows the pressures that are on you, and he will provide all your needs. Your identity is from Jesus. Not in how anyone else honors or shames you. He gives you a new name as one of his own, as a child of God, in fact, as an heir of God, and a joint heir of Jesus Christ in his coming kingdom. Confident in that, we can continue to be faithful while we wait for his return. Let's pray. Father, we do recognize that We are pressed, both just in the harshness of the realities of of broken lives in a broken world. We are pressed at times because there is a spiritual enemy that hates you and so hates those whom you love and whom you have redeemed and saved. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, your Son, our Savior. 
We thank you that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, by believing in him, he has taken away my own sin. And perhaps each one here could declare that this morning. That they believe in the Lamb of God who takes away their own sin. And that Lamb of God is coming to take away the presence of sin in the world and to reign in his righteousness as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Father, we long for that day. And Lord, would you put it clearly before us that your day is coming and that you will keep us in the present hour. And so, Father, help us to be faithful, to continue then in love toward in love for you and thus love for one another, love toward the people around us. Lord, let us be able to endure hardship if it comes and trouble as it happens, knowing that you have us, not only today, but eternally. And Father, then, help us to be light in the midst of darkness, to be true in the midst of compromise, not in judging others, Lord, but caring for them. And knowing that in the end, your truth is best. It is for our good. It is where we are safe. Lord, keep us, Lord. By your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.